And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Look at that. The kids still got it. <laughs> I wanted to sing uh, The Boys Are Back in Town from uh, by uh, Thin Lizzy. Yeah. Yeah. Just do the whole thing. Because I've done a whole two podcasts without you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a minute, man. Yeah, it's been a while. So uh, if you're listening, um, w- you know, we, we've still been, we've been putting out episodes, but Tony and I haven't recorded anything since uh, March, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, what have you been doing since, Tony? Oh, you know, uh, waking up every three hours to uh, feed and change two twins. <laughs> what? That's, yeah. I, why didn't you talk about, why didn't you tell me this before? I know. Surprising. You just, you just, uh, I just thought you, you were know. quarantining and you just didn't want to have anything to do with me. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. No. Yeah. So my, um, I'm pretty sure my, yeah, my, my two boys, uh, Ren and Max were born, um, about a week after the last time we recorded. Um, and yeah, I've just been home since, uh, yeah. And, uh, I've managed to dabble in a little bit of uh pop culture when i find the time i've uh i've been re-watching the last airbender uh i s- decided that now is the right time to start reading the stand <laughs> <laughs> what are you reading like a page at a time uh no i'm like i'm like a third of the way through it oh nice nice what is it uh, like it's taking four, me a month but like four, 1200 1400 pages this is the um the complete and uncut edition. So he he added a couple hundred Jesus. pages. So yeah, it's a, it's a beefy book. Oh, um, but I read uh, and I read uh, the Tombs of Adewan, the oh, yeah. second Earthsea book by Ursula Le Guin, and uh, I actually just finished playing Axiom Verge right before we uh, hopped oh, on nice. this. So, I hear it's good. Yeah, it's good. It's um, you know, the guy's got a the designer's got a good brain for level design and that sort of classic metroid feel you know really wears its influences on its sleeve but uh it's a lot of fun and i know you're a metroid fan so i am um, definitely yeah. worth checking out yeah it's on my list How about you man what what have you been up to uh staring into the abyss sure yeah uh no uh <laughs> uh yeah i i've been kind of i've been a, i've been actually managed since quarantine to read around 20 books um, oh, wow. I've just gotten into a nice rhythm of just reading a little bit each morning. And so I've read like every Charles Portis book, uh, which I think I've mentioned on the show before he wrote true grit. Um, and he's mm-hmm. like, uh, quickly become a favorite. I've read some of the, uh, Discworld books. Um, I read the first one, um, which was, was pretty good. I don't know if you've ever read any of, um, what's his name? Terry Pratchett. Yeah, they're pretty good. They're, they're a lot of fun. Um, somewhere between kind of like, um, hitchhiker's guide and and monty python it's all fantasy based stuff but it's it's a lot of fun reading a lot of comics cool. catching up on some dc comics um because i did like a um like a trial subscription with the dc comics uh app so you have access to a lot of back stuff so i've been reading a lot of batman a lot of stuff catching up on which is pretty good nice watching a lot of movies you're trying to anyway sometimes it's just like this is too heavy i don't want to watch this so and then I just rewatch What's Up Doc and Paper Moon, and then I'm I'm cheers me up for a few minutes. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I'm. I know that Uncut Gems is just sitting there on Netflix, but I have just oh man, I'm a little too tired for that. I it's think. really good, but it is uh, 
anxiety inducing. It's it's really puts you on the edge of your seat the whole time. Yeah, I can hold off on that for a bit longer. Yeah. I saw it in the theater with my brother and at the end like this dude was just like that was fucking bullshit. He was so angry. <laughs> it was pretty great. That was the worst movie ever. I think people were expecting like dumb Adam Sandler jokes and humor and and <laughs> is decidedly not that. So what are you going to do? Don't they know that that uh, you know, like cicadas, serious Adam Sandler emerges from the soil every seven years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. But he said after this, like, because he wasn't nominated for an Oscar, and everyone was pushing for it, and he should have been nominated because he's he's pretty remarkable. Um, and he said, like, after that sort of rejection, that he's like, ah, fuck you guys, I'm just gonna do all like dick and fart jokes from now on or something like that. But you you never know. Someone will come who he out, is. and maybe Paul Thomas Anderson will convince him to do another interesting movie again i don't know so i watched um the five bloods which is uh spike lee's new movie that popped up on netflix oh yeah again another super heavy movie for right now but you know it's really cool it's it's pretty messy and sprawling as typical for spike but i think that's kind of what's appealing about him sometimes because you're never really quite sure um where his movies go or or Mm -hmm his approach to things um and i also watched his uh, an older one of his movies which is a little more uh light which is inside man which is like a heist movie um which is pretty fun oh, okay. i haven't seen that yet yeah it's got denzel washington and uh clive owens and that's also on netflix so it's nice. pretty fun so we have a special guest with us today he's been on the show before this is our first official uh two-timer right um, and that's Chris uh, Knott. Yeah, I think so. From Wee's Talking Wee's to Thee and the Blue Album Battle podcast. Hey, Chris. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, no problem. I guess Absolutely. I didn't blow it the first time. I guess the fish didn't turn you off too dramatically. <laughs> no, no. You know, we, uh, you know, full disclosure, we're just, uh, we think that you're the secret sauce. That fish episode is still our blockbuster. So we're just, we're just milking you for all the downloads we can get. <laughs> can we have some on our podcast? Because uh, we're dried up. <laughs> it's straight dust. <laughs> Got to switch it up to Pinkerton, dude. <laughs> uh, Pinkerton is our most listened to episode, actually. Really? Of, uh, yeah, more than blue. Wow. Even. That's interesting. But you had. Um one of the founding members of Weezer on your podcast, Jason Cropper. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That was recently. a cool listen. Yeah. yeah he, he's a pretty, pretty cool dude. Very thoughtful guy. Very insightful. Good humored guy too. You know, uh, just nice, nice gentleman. And uh, yeah, people love that. Here's the thing. Weezer fans are almost as vitriolic as any fan event. Like you name, you name the, you know, the item. Star Wars, whatever, the franchise. Like, Weezer fans are arguably the hardest to please. <laughs> for good reason. They were so satisfied for two albums and then have hated everything for 20 years. It's like, you know, they just, like, persistently disappointed. And even they liked the interview. So when I saw that, I said, wow. I'll tell you what, that's some actual vindication or validation, I should say. Because it could have gone either way. And also, we're not experts on early Weezer. There's people who have kind of, like date by date and day by day chronology of that period of theirs and that's not us you know we kind of just talked about music and we went track by track through the blue album with a guy who was there writing all the songs so the podcast kind of made itself like we just kind of got out of the way but i was very happy with how it turned out it had some technical issues and all this stuff but it ended up uh something i'm really proud of yeah i I thought it was a i thought it was a good listen cool 
Last time you were on the show, you just had the Wheeze Talking Wheeze to the podcast. And now you have a, a, like an ancillary podcast, which is the Blue Album Battle. Yeah. So, so what is the Blue Album Battle? Yeah, Blue uh, Album so Battle, what, right? What, so we kind of came what, to the conclusion. Why don't you... Uh, one, we were uh, a little tired of just talking about Weezer, but we loved doing a podcast and we loved talking about music. And we kind of came to the conclusion that Blue Album, for whatever you think of Weezer, is a pretty damn near perfect record. And it's a great 90s record at the very least. It's a great distillation of the period if you're a certain type of music listener. So our thought was, what if we kind of looked at all the other music happening in the 90s that was significant either with popular success or critical acclaim or endurance and put it up against the Blue Album? So we kind of came up with a 10-round rubric of, you know, opening track and riffs and production and all this stuff to kind of judge on a, on a piece-by-piece basis. Does this album hold up to what we consider a pretty perfect record? You know, and... um it's been fascinating. I think we've done, I don't know, we've done over a dozen of them now. I've lost track. But we've been cranking them out a little bit in quarantine. It's dried up a little bit because uh, my co-host is, he hasn't had kids, but he actually has to, you know, go to work again. <laughs> so that's kind of like upset our rhythm a little bit. But yeah, it's been really, it's been a cool little trek through the music of the 90s. It's been a lot of fun to make. Uh, I confess to not having listened in a little bit. Um, one of a lot of things I haven't been able to keep up on. Has anything beaten the Blue Album yet? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Many. Things. I've listened to. I've listened to <laughs> oh, all really? of them faithfully. Yeah, Matt is a faithful listener. I love like the Friday late afternoon text from Matt. Re something having to do with the podcast. Yeah, it's usually like that was really fun, and or uh, I really enjoyed that, or just like pure seething anger. Yes. <laughs> yes. How dare you? I don't think I've tuned in since maybe the Wu-Tang or the mm. Automatic for the People album. Yeah, so. those are yeah. pretty early. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, there have been like some pretty decisive victories for other bands, but there's been a lot of really okay. close battles and it's amazing how over the course of, and Matt knows, you know, because every week it feels like it happens, there's these big swings where like Weezer will start off strong and then drop off in a couple categories in the middle and then come roaring back towards the end. And it's like, oh my God, it almost feels like a sporting event. It is. Uh, I was surprised by how invested I became when like when those things would happen. It's like, ooh, Metallica might take it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I don't think that one was ever in question, but point taken. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we've talked about this off the you know, off mic, obviously, but I think the appeal for me isn't really the outcome. It's really that conversation that comes from it. Uh, and, and getting to hear your personal tastes and the way the two of you kind of hash it out and also how you surprise each other. Like sometimes your genuine reaction to each other is just, it's so funny because you're just like, how could you possibly (laughs) think this? Um, which makes for for fun listening, obviously, that kind of push and pull. Right. And I think we could make a better show if we actually compared notes, but we make a real show, which is I have no idea what my co-host, Chris the Younger, another friend of mine named Chris, um, I have no idea what he thinks about a record before we start, before I hit record, and nor he me, though we know each other's tastes so well now. And people who really follow every episode like you do, Matt, and we have a lot of listeners who write me every week with their own scores and all this stuff. It's, it's a really fun sort of conversation we can defy each other's expectation by like, really, you like this, but not that? So it becomes this long conversation over like, but you didn't like the opening track to this record, but you like this, and they're like the same thing, so what's up? And it makes you have to actually evaluate, why is that? What is it about me and my tastes that creates that sort of cognitive dissonance at times? Yeah, I mean, but that's kind of like, 
I think listening to podcasts and reading about pop culture and art in general, you're just I. It's like every critic is filled with contradictions. It, it happens, like yeah. especially over a long enough time. And I think the best art, the best criticism um, or cultural conversation is the ones that kind of reveal who the writer really is without actually having to say like, this reminds me of my mother or anything like that. You know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. Like you're yeah. learning about the people as you go. Those are my favorite podcasts, I think. Right. Um, and I think you that's pretty apparent uh, on the show. You've also, uh, before we get into our topic, um, and to bring it back around to fish again, you also have this new Instagram account where called Fish Riffs. Yes. Uh, where you are doing like these one minute mini covers of fish songs. Yes. Uh, you know, and that was born out of the Blue Elm Battle podcast. That was born out of our fish episode because I'm not going to lie, and we've talked about it on, on the Weezer shows, like Weezer isn't anywhere near my favorite band. Frankly, fish isn't my favorite band either, but they're a band that I arguably know more about than most bands. And we did this an episode on their album, Billy Breathes, from 96. And it was like so liberating to talk about something I knew so well. It was so liberating to investigate music that was worthy of investigation. And then just on Instagram, on our Weezer account, I did like a little cover, guitar and bass cover of one of their songs. And it got like a lot of attention. Like, like the Fish fans really liked it. I was like, oh, that's cool. That was surprising. It was like our most viewed thing ever on that account. And I was like, man, you know, it's a nice thought to like invest a lot of time into something you actually love and feels, even though it's hard because fish music is hard, like it feels effortless because it's just something you enjoy doing. So in quarantine, just two months ago, I was like, I want to put this energy somewhere. And so I was doing the podcast and then. Yeah. So I just started that off kind of like on in simple terms. And that was about as of time of this recording two months ago. And I've yet to miss a day. So I'm up to like 58 or something wow. fish riffs. I, you know, every day I make an, I haven't made today's yet and it's 1135 in the morning and I generally post at like seven at night. So I've got to cook something up uh, sometime between now and then because I, I want to keep that up as long as I can. But people are really responding favorably to it. I write out tabs up for a lot of them so people can learn them. And, you know, it's been really fun. That's created a lot of conversation too, just among me and other guitarists and other musicians and people asking, how are you editing this? How are you mixing this? What are you, you know, the, just technical questions and theoretical questions and who are you? Why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> how, how long does it generally take you to, to, to record like this one minute piece? Cause you don't do, you don't do any vocals. It's just bass, drum, guitar, and keys. I will say I don't do vocals yet. <laughs> oh. because I think I may do a series on their vocal arranging because they have really great multi-part because they have four vocalists in the band. So I want to do that. Tony and I are aware because because we're Fish fans now. That's right. You've seen it in action. You actually saw one of their great three-part harmony yeah. songs, I Didn't Know, which had the vacuum solo. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, yes. And you texted me yeah. like... You know, Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> yeah, no Oh, I didn't <laughs> expect you to know the name. Don't get me wrong. Even though they say it over and I didn't know. I, I also want to note to our listeners that uh, the look of disgust on Tony's face when I said that we were Fish fans was palpable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, to be fair, uh, uh, that... That disgust was exacerbated by two months of exhaustion. That's right. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, my Skype screen got like a jaundiced sort of yellow. <laughs> it just went like, no. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But that's coming from the guy in the ween shirt. So, you know, make of that what you will. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> but um, I know who but I yeah, am. But yeah, so I don't generally do vocals uh, yet. But I do want to. Um, they generally take... Oh, God. From the moment I press record, like with 
I'd say probably two and a half to four hours to like oh, hitting wow. record, mixing, editing, finalizing. Because it's video editing as well, obviously. And I've been doing a lot of split screen and it just takes time. It's really fun though. But that doesn't include learning the song either, which I'm sure isn't always effortless. That's the fastest part. That's Yes, that's the funny thing. And, and everyone's been really kind, but some people do point out sometimes. There was one in particular on on a really big fish riff where someone was like, listen, great playing, but I'm pretty sure this part is actually this. Do you know what I mean? Like, so they were correcting me. They're like, no offense. I'm just saying like, it may be something to, to think about. And I was like, you know, what's crazy. That makes perfect sense. And the learning and perfecting quote unquote of the line is what I put the least amount of time into. I learned the things quick. It's then tracking them and getting a real, cause also I'm trying to get it all in one take. I'm not like editing around performance. So you just got to kind of hit it perfect for a minute, which is not easy with these songs. But thankfully, like I'm, I'm a good enough, I have a good enough ear that like that aspect of it comes quick with some notable exceptions. Um, so yeah, that takes a while too. So maybe like, I'll say like 45 minutes of pre-production because I also set up the track and all that stuff and kind of get the drums cooking because I've been programming drums. But right next to me is my drum set. I set it up in my studio. I set up mics. I did a test yesterday. So I'm going to start doing real drums on the videos. Nice. Hopefully starting today. We'll see. Excellent. Because that's been a missing piece. Yeah. Um, for sure. It's not super noticeable, but you know, I'm sure it'll be exciting. Once you, once you actually hear the live drums, I'll be like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's going to be seeing them. I think it's the visual oh, seeing true, the drums yeah. is just going to change everything. But that was a huge vote of confidence where you uh, you checked it out. And the first one you saw, you said, why didn't you show video of the drums? And I was like, I programmed those. Like, I played them on my keyboard. And Matt, who's a great drummer, he the fact that you couldn't tell made me say, no, no, no this, no so-so. The fact that you couldn't tell made me say, oh, great. Like, that means I'm doing a good enough job. Cool. And you were like, damn, drum programming has come a long it, way. Yeah, I mean, that's the first reaction. It's just like, wait, what? Like, and, and, you know, you have access to all these things now on your phone and on your computer. It's so right. seemingly effortless. Obviously, there's time put into it. But yeah, honestly, here's the thing. Playing it would be much easier than because yeah. like, oh. I perform it in multiple parts and then edit it. And, you know, there's something about like, just give me some sticks and sit me behind a drum set with a couple mics and just let me play and I'll probably get it in 10 minutes instead of send, spending 30 minutes programming, it. you know. But anyway, I know that's off on a tangent, and I'm excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today. But enough fish talk. I swear they won't come up one more time in this podcast. <laughs> uh, ooh, I think that's a challenge. Good thing they're not called the dinosaurs, you know? Ooh, and that's a good segue if I've ever heard one. We're talking about Jurassic Park. Yeah. Last time you were on our show, you introduced us to fish. Yes. When we decided to have you back on because we had so much fun last time. In, in fact, last time we ran out of time. We, we could have kept going. Oh, yeah. When we decided to have you back on, we were like, oh, well, it has to be one of your pop culture blind spots. And you sent me this insane, <laughs> just bonkers list. I shared it with Tony. And he's like, is this a joke? I know. Because they're all some of the most like popular, <laughs> influential <laughs> movies of all time and TV shows of all time. Can we uh can you like can you give us like an abridged rundown of some of those titles, Matt? Yeah, it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was all the Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh Alien. And, and in honor of that, I'm wearing my Alien t-shirt today. <laughs> uh Sopranos. Uh-huh. Buffy the Bam- Vampire Slayer. Uh and and the Back topic to the of future? today's episode. Back to the Future. Ba- oh, <laughs> I forgot. Back to the Future. Jesus Christ. Yeah, Terminator. <laughs> yeah. And the topic of today's episode. Jurassic Park. I've seen Schindler's List like 20 times, weirdly enough. 
which is which is great. No, I've never seen. I have not seen Schindler's List either. Are you serious? I don't. Uh, yes, we'll talk yeah, about it. I we'll haven't talk either. About it. <laughs> it's funny because I think when we did our Beatles episode, we we're like, well, nothing's going to be more popular than this, and arguably Jurassic Park could be up there. Right. Adjusted for inflation, it it made in the states like over a billion dollars. Oof. Um, which is an obscene amount of money. Uh, and obviously it's, it's, it's had a lot of sequels and they've all been relatively successful. It came back recently with Jurassic World and that also made over a billion dollars. And uh, there's theme park rides, uh, cultural memes that, are, that revolve around the, the, the movie. Um, and it's just something that's, uh, people seem to love dinosaurs. Um, so Chris, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> I, I think that I think the big the big thing is, is like you like when it came out in 1993, mm-hmm. you seem to be at the perfect age for a movie. I like was. That. Yeah, I was 10 years old. Yeah. So how come? How, why haven't you seen it? I don't know. My We didn't go to a lot of movies. Now, here's something like I know you guys listeners are probably like, why are they having this guy? He doesn't know anything about movies. Matt knows as well as any like I I'm a very specific movie buff. I love. Yeah. 70s cinema i love a lot of 60s cinema i love billy wilder i love robert altman i've seen every kubrick like i love auteurs my favorite filmmaker ever is paul thomas anderson like i've i've seen most what i would consider important movies but not popular movies and in fact up until this morning when i watched this movie i don't think outside of the star wars movie because star wars is the only franchise i've ever actually watched outside of i guess lord of the rings because i read those books and i was a nerd so i you know i've also never seen a harry potter or read one Come <laughs> just to add to the list of just embarrassment. Like I hadn't watched an action movie of any kind in probably over I don't know, well over a decade. I mean, like I hadn't felt that. I never watch horror movies. I never watch action movies. I don't watch sci-fi. It doesn't interest me. It's just not for me, for whatever reason. If anyone ever asks, like, oh, what kind of movies do you like? I go like, I like movies with like people, ideally adults, talking in rooms. That's the movies I like. Like you say on your podcast, you like sad bastard music, and you but I like comedies too. But I like comedies. They doesn't. They don't have to be talking serious. They just have to be. It has to be humans grounded with feet on the floor, talking about things that are either important or important or funny. But but the other through line with the comedies you like, you tend to like comedies about sad people. Sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, because I don't like dumb. I mean, I love those things. You said like, hey, have you seen like this Will Ferrell movie? The answer is probably no right i don't even think i said his name right <laughs> i think i like elided colin farrell and will farrell but whatever <laughs> yeah it's just uh because it when it came out it seemed like a movie that everyone went to go see and everyone was talking about right um so it's interesting that you just you know yeah like like i had extended family who were really into it I remember like having a younger cousin who was like obsessed with Jurassic Park because he was the perfect age to get into dinosaurs. I never had a dinosaur phase, so that was that was part. Of it. I didn't think they were dumb. I just didn't care, you know. And you know, I'm an obsessive person, so like it could very well have been dinosaurs. It just for me happened to be sports. Like I was just really into NFL and NBA. That's what I cared about, and music, obviously. But um, what what a nerd! <laughs> I know. I just chose the most mainstream things I did. But I mean, but I didn't because I missed all of the, I never saw Lion King, like all the big movies from that era I missed, you know, for whatever reason. I do remember them putting it on once on like one of the last days of school, maybe in fifth grade for me. But I, like it was on on a small TV in the auditorium, like, and I just sat in the back and tried to hold hands with a girl. 
Like I wasn't watching the movie. I was just trying to like get some action. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, that was enough to get the blood flowing. That's all it took. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Contact, babe. Tony, what's your history with Jurassic Park? Uh, yeah, so I was eight when Jurassic Park came out, and this was really the first big event movie I was aware of. Um, you know, I sort of came up on, you know, watching our VHS copy of E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, you know, we had a copy taped off of HBO, obviously Star Wars. So, like, this was sort of checking a lot of boxes. Um, you know, I knew who George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were. You know, they were like my heroes, even though I probably hadn't seen much of Spielberg's stuff. Yeah, I saw the uh, the more kid-appropriate stuff at that point. Kid-appropriate is in air quotes because, I mean, uh, Raiders is not especially kid-friendly, but... Um, Very violent. There's a you know, weird gray area there. Um, and I actually was not allowed to go see it. Um, uh, I remember being sort of primed to go see it with... Uh, my friend and our dads and then my mom wouldn't let me at the last minute because she she thought it was going to be like et wherein like people have this sort of adorable relationship with dinosaurs and then she read the reviews as they came out she's like oh no a guy gets chomped in half on a toilet i can't let my eight-year-old see that and i was like but mom a guy gets chomped in half on a toilet if only it was on a sofa, you know, it'd be more acceptable. I guess. The toilet, yeah, maybe, yeah, if his parents were up. Yeah. I don't like um, that potty humor. That's right. Yeah. So I felt, you know, that was like, that was the first like pop cultural thing I was sort of aware of and not participating in and feeling left out. You know, I got, to, I had the toys, I had a t-shirt, um, but it was, yeah, it was a big like formative I think missing it in theaters was a very formative experience. I you know, eventually saw it as soon as it came out on video, but that was, uh, you know, maybe a year later. And, uh, you know, it was this big moment because it was the first, it was like that, it was that big evolutionary leap where CGI had done things like the T-1000 and Terminator. It was very kind of simply used but effective, but this was like, oh, this is what we can make movies look like. Like you're up until that point, you see a dinosaur in a movie and this is a very specific reference to the North shore of Massachusetts. And they all kind of looked like the, um, the big orange T-Rex that was at the mini golf course on route one. That's sort of like a a local landmark. Yeah. Um, they looked very goofy, but like, like, Oh, this is, you could believe that they actually lived and breathed as you saw them in this movie. Um, and to have missed out on seeing that in the theater that summer, um, is something I still like to bring up and uh, give my mother a hard time about. <laughs> she's down. She's here now. She's helping with the kids, and she's downstairs. And I, I was uh, poking at it earlier, <laughs> poking at the Jurassic Park uh, bear or dinosaur. Yep. What about you, Matt? Yeah, for me, um, this movie uh, has so many sp- specific reference points to my life. Like it comes in and out all the time. And there are all these things that are like burned into my brain about it. Um, and I'm a little older. So when it came out, I was very much aware of the hype behind it. Um, and I remember specifically too, that leading up to the release, um, a lot of the entertainment journalism had kind of pitted Jurassic Park versus Last Action Hero, saying like, these are the two summer movies and they're both opening on the same weekend. 
And I was so excited because I was like, oh my God, I, I, I want to see both of them because uh, I was at that age where my uncles were starting to sneak me into the theater to see R-rated movies, to see Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. And I was obsessed with Total Recall. Can I just um, say, the truth is, I was a last action hero guy. So I was like team last action hero. <laughs> that's why I didn't see Jurassic Park. I'm glad it came up organically because that's Wait. the truth. <laughs> Are you serious? That's the truth of the matter. Yeah. So wait, so like you just like <laughs> you just told us how you're like, oh, I only watch 70s Artur movies, <laughs> but I I like will die on the last yeah, action. I Hero always say Hill. last is first. That's our catchphrase. <laughs> we have a Facebook group. I'm sorry, guys. And scene. I don't even. I know I've seen Last Action Hero. I, I just don't even. I, I I know I've seen it. I couldn't tell you what it's about besides like the kid goes in the movie. Yeah, I it's like Curse of the Jade Scorpion. By it. Oh no 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 no! Wrong wrong wrong! It's like Purple Rose of Cairo. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot like Purple Rose. Uh, it's it, it's actually like so it bombed when it came out, um, but it's actually way more interesting uh, than uh, I think people were led to believe, especially because like everyone's like, oh, this is notorious. This is like the first big Schwarzenegger flop. But it's interesting because like he does, this kid goes into the movie uh, and and meets this kind of action hero played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then Schwarzenegger goes into the real world and confronts himself, like his the actor Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Whoa. And and it's kind of thorny. He kind of like pokes fun at himself and it's, it's way more... Uh, maybe it was a little ahead of its time. It's not a great movie. Uh, I, I think the child actor isn't particularly good, uh, but it kind of makes fun of big budget action movies, makes fun of Schwarzenegger movies. Uh, it's written by Shane Black, um, who did uh, Lethal Weapon movie, the first two Lethal Weapons, but he also did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang um, and uh, The Nice Guys recently and Iron Man 3. Uh, and so it has that kind of like, great kind of um you know banter that he's known for but that opening weekend i actually saw both jurassic park and last action hero and i think we saw last action hero first i went with my friends but i ended up seeing jurassic park twice that opening weekend because i went with some friends and then i went with another friend and his family and i remember that second viewing i saw so i live with my uncles um and all i would ever hear because I was obsessed with Star Wars, was that they saw Star Wars opening weekend and that it was this revelatory, mind-blowing thing and had changed the, the movie industry. And that when they saw those effects for the first time, it, it was just astonishing. Um, and so I kind of always had that in the back of my mind every time I go see a new effects-driven movie of just like, I'm having that experience or looking for that experience of like, oh, this is the next evolutionary step. So we'd always kind of compare everything to Star Wars and that kind of, you know, that opening shot where you see the ship going over and just kind of blowing your mind. And that's what it felt like going to see Jurassic Park. It's like, oh, you won't believe it. It, it They did it. Dinosaurs. Oh, my God. It looks incredible. Um, and I remember that second showing um, something was wrong with the projector. So the movie started and I had already seen it. So everything was squished and everybody looked like stout and kind of fat. And I, I don't know what would happen with the lens or something like that. So so they had to stop the movie like 10 minutes in and then start it over again and, and recalibrate. But that's like a very vivid moment for me of uh, of being, you know, I was at that age where I was starting to become obsessed with how things were made and 
and all uh, and, and the behind the scenes stuff and obviously the uh, the lead up to it and all the press behind things. So I was very much invested in it. Um, and then it became a staple at home. And a story in our family was that um, my parents went out, my grandmother came over to watch everyone. And my brother was very, very little, like really young. And we decided to put on Jurassic Park. And as it, as, as it goes, my mom came home and we told her and um, we were like, no, he loved it. He sat there and watched the whole thing. He stood, he was still the whole time. He, he was fine. Uh, it turns out he had big nightmares. He's like, no, the can't sleep. The dinosaur will eat me. And this has become another kind of reoccurring thing that we talk about in our family. Oh, remember when we let Jeff watch Jurassic traumatized Park? Traumatized Jeff. Yeah, when we traumatized Jeff. I think that's, we've we've had multiple traumatized Jeff stories on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you did it with Resident Evil, didn't you? I did it, yeah, yeah. That, that one wasn't intentional. This wasn't intentional either. We thought he was watching it intently, not just scared shitless, you know? Um, and then uh, I, I I actually went and saw it recently um, when they put it in the theaters. Um, I can't remember. It might have been around the 30th anniversary, but they re-released it in 3D uh, and they played it in oh, IMAX. Yeah. So I went with a uh, uh, friend of the show, Chris Chillum. Uh, and yeah, it was it was pretty it was fun. It was fun to see it on the big screen again. But I will say that the 3D is bad. Yeah, I saw that, too. And it was pretty disappointing. I mean, not, I mean, the experience was fun, but yeah. the, the 3D was so unnecessary and just like that, like that was that two or three years where everything was getting a 3D upgrade or conversion and none of it needed it. I think in particular, um, and this can help us kind of segue into the movie, Spielberg is such a deliberate filmmaker and he's very aware of his focal plane as far as like his foreground, his middle ground and his background. And he's always choosing wisely where your focus is and using the foreground as a way of drawing your attention to stuff in the background. So when you separate those to make it 3D and you have these extreme elements in the foreground that are out of focus, it's so distracting. And it really muddies up the whole image because you can't, like your eyes are just like, wait, why am I watching this, these out of focus leaves in the foreground it's because they stick out with the 3d um so it, it, it was kind of frustrating in that regard it was fun to see it on the big screen and hear it nice and loud um and hear like dinosaurs breathing down your neck and all that stuff but uh the 3d yeah it doesn't work so so chris um you just finished watching it like what 45 minutes ago <laughs> Basically, yeah. I wanted to wait till the very last moment because I'm a procrastinator, but two, I wanted to be really fresh as well. Sure. So yeah, I, I, I was lying in bed this morning at age 36 watching Jurassic Park on my laptop for the first time. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's, pull, let's rip the Band-Aid off. Like, what are your first impressions? I have to say, so saying all that, I'm 36 years old and arguably this movie is like, not only is it not for me, it's for like the opposite of who I am. It's just not what I like in cinema. It's not what I desire. It's yeah, me it's and Tony. Me <laughs> but even like, even like someone <laughs> 30 years younger, it's really for, arguably. Um, I still got chills when we first see the Brachiosaurus in the field. Between the music, just that cinema, that cinema right there is that moment. I'm not saying I love this movie. I'm saying it's still capable of bringing those out of me here in 2020 
under really a lot different circumstances than 1993 in every sense of the word, right? Uh, it was still very powerful and had a lot of powerful... And I, I'll tell you what, I was invigorated. But also I will say this, I have not watched a movie outside of the Michael Jordan documentary, which doesn't count. I haven't watched a movie in quarantine. So I haven't watched a movie in at least three months. I haven't had the desire. I, I One, I've been busy like just with projects, but two... I haven't wanted to go to another world. I, I'm very, I feel like very sensitive right now. I'm a pretty sensitive person anyway, but I, like, I just feel everything feels too real right now. Uh, when I'm out in the world, you know, grocery shopping or just like on the road, I'm like, the world seems to be moving so fast and it's so stimulating. So that's part of the reason this movie worked over me like it did because I was like, my heart hasn't, I mean, I've been like running and stuff, but like as far as just sitting still, my heart was racing like for a lot of this movie because I don't know what happens. Now, I didn't really care what happened to anyone. That's a problem. But what was happening was invigorating. The visuals, I mean, the dinosaurs hold up too, guys. Like it's 2020. Those dinosaurs look good. You know, like it's really impressive. You know, at the very least, it's an impressive movie. And Matt and I know when we talk about music, that's often what that's what you used to say about fish. It's like, I, I don't doubt it's good. I just don't like it. You know, like, oh, damn it. I mentioned them. I could have used any other band that was uh, that was <laughs> talented. I could use lost. any other band that was talented and unlistenable. And I happen to use them. They're just the best example. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but Next time, just like go for Creed or Nickelbackers. No, no, because they're not yeah, exactly. good on any level. You know, so it, it definitely worked on me. I It flew by, too, by the way. Part of the reason I don't watch a lot of movies is I have really bad ADHD and I have trouble just focusing for two hours. I like episodic things or just, you know what I mean? I, I like the fact that I can leave and it doesn't disrupt things. This movie, I was like, oh my God, it's 10 o'clock. Like, cause I like, you know, I wake up early, but I set an alarm. I was like, I gotta make sure I watch it. I have, I have to have two hours to watch this movie, <laughs> two hours and eight minutes. Um, and, uh, and it flew by. But also, that's partly because of the structure. I think it's a structurally very strange movie. Yeah, it really is. It's not a traditional, like, story arc. It's really just like an hour of setup and then an hour of action. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so much setup. And it's funny because this time I was just like, oh, when the T Rex scene, which is like probably the most famous scene of the whole movie. Sure. Um, when that came up, I was like, oh, I, I pulled up the the uh, the time. And I was like, oh, yeah, we're an hour in. Oh, shit. And because yes. the first half is really just a lot of information because they have to it's set so up. It's so expositional. Yeah. It's so clunkily expositional for me, for my taste. No, was... I, I, I actually I agree with that. And I think some of the things you said, like you don't necessarily care about a lot of the the characters. And I agree with that, too. Um, I think the kids are almost superfluous. They're just there to be put in danger. Um, and, and even the element where the little girl is just like, I'm a hacker is just kind of bullshit screenwriter stuff that I think has become really prevalent with modern filmmaking where they're just like, we'll just make one mention here that this person could yeah. do this thing uh, to get us out of this problem later on uh, in the story. Um, and I think even Jeff Goldblum's character doesn't, work unless it's jeff goldblum because he he imbues it with so much specificity and eccentricities like that weird moment where he's like playing with laura dern's hair it's just like oh man so strange and creepy and it's just like oh that's what makes it a character yeah. not his dialogue because his dialogue is almost purely expositional and granted he has a few like zingers and one-liners and stuff like that and yeah, at some really inopportune times. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> You're like, you just got mauled by a T-Rex. Yeah. 
You don't say like thanks for the weekend, man. You know, like it's just ridiculous. Yeah. But I mean, I do think that works with what he's positing is just like the chaos theory thing. He's just like, whatever, man, like life has no meaning. Like yeah. everything's out of our control. I might as well make jokes about it, you know. I mean, you you say that that's a specific character choice, but you guys not remember the the wealth of rock star mathematicians in the early nineties? <laughs> no. <laughs> I you know, speaking of characters, um, I always forget that Samuel L. Jackson is in it because this is like, it's but like in a good way because it's it's before Pulp Fiction, it's before like every character he plays is just the coolest, and he is just like he's the only real person in the movie. Who like he's not impressed by the dinosaurs. He's not scared of the dinosaurs. He's like he's just at work. Yeah, he's got a job to do, and he's just you know, just drilling cigarettes, constantly annoyed at his sloppy desk mate. <laughs> um, and it's such like it's every time he pops up, I'm like, oh, it's so nice to like just see him not be the coolest guy in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it was fascinating. Is hold on to your butts a meme? And, Is that a thing? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't. I'm, I think so. I think people say that. I know, like. Uh, Chilton will say that to me all the time, like, hold on to your butts, you know? Yeah. I never um, associated that with this movie, and but I feel like I've heard that before. But I'm almost certain no one's ever thought to say that before this movie. <laughs> For good reason. Other than early Spike Lee movies, is this, like, the last time we get to see his, like, his uh, his crown? Like, his his bald spot? No, Black, he's like, Black he, Snake He moan. shaves his head after Black this, Black Snake right? Moan. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's is that true? true? I just moan. kind of made that up. Yeah. What did you say? Oh yeah, he's he's pretty bald in Black that one. In which one? Moan. Yeah, he's definitely looks his age. Oh, oh yeah, he kind of leans into it there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I think the people are there. I mean, I think everybody knows that they're there just to be dinosaur fodder. This yeah. is just this is a a monster movie first. Yeah. yeah right. Oh, for sure. And like and like, just one of the greatest monster movies ever made. Like we we get that first like sh- like bit of terror at the beginning we don't get a clear look at them but then like the idea that he wants his first full introduction of a dinosaur to be one of wonder and awe is like is that's the missing piece from the other jurassic park movies there's no sense of like you know no one is just like moved to tears in the other you know yeah it it becomes so like blasé or like they're just like weird mercenaries or but uh, that's part of the po- the point of of jurassic world too is that these people are sure are no longer care about the, these things although spoiler alert i mean we'll say right now that like jurassic world is is just garbage so um <laughs> is that it has that interesting is element that but they don't do anything they don't do enough with it so gotcha, gotcha. that moment you know when they see the was it uh, the brontosaurus or brachiosaurus the brachiosaurus, brachiosaurus. <laughs> um that moment is sort of like a meme in and of itself in regards to Spielberg's career. Like that look of awe is the Spielberg look. Like Mm. that's peppered throughout his whole career. I think what happens often is people kind of say, like point to that as like, that's why he's not good because it's all about wonder and nostalgia and he's spoon feeding his audience. But I think those detractors miss the, the point of those shots, which is that this, these moments of pure beauty and awe in the face of something that you can't possibly comprehend. And that's also scary. And you get that in Jaws, you get that in um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you get that in E.T., all these things that are just like, I don't 
get this. I don't understand this, but it's like, it's awe-inspiring. Um, and I, that's what makes him so distinctive as a filmmaker. Sure. And I mean, in, in the case of Jurassic Park, I mean, these three people see this creature and have almost a religious experience and then immediately go into 45 minutes of why this was the worst thing anyone could have ever done. Yeah. yeah. This movie has been like, there's like billions of memes that kind of uh, are based around this movie. Now, now that you've seen it, Chris, is there any things that are like, oh, that makes sense now? Or are, were you familiar with any of the memes or anything? Like uh, no, I'm not. I'm not hip to memes. Uh, I, I'm not great with that language. So I don't see sure. a lot of that. Um, I have a feeling. Can I guess what one could be, too? I, I, sure. I definitely thought after you said meme, I was like, oh, hold on to your butts. Um, clever girl. Is that a meme? Yeah. Uh, yep. That okay. one might be the biggest one. I've one of the okay, biggest ones. That's good. Oh, yeah. Because I didn't yeah. know Type that. In, uh, I thought I thought that should that should be popular. That. You know? Oh yeah, you'll find T-shirts with a raptor doing a Rubik's cube and say "clever ah, girl." And, mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe it's gotten into my subconscious, but like it definitely like boom vibrated at a different frequency than a lot of the other just one-liners in the in the movie. There's also a lot of memes yeah. of of Jeff Goldblum kind of laying there with his shirt open, <laughs> and they'll just kind of remove the background and put whatever they want. Oh, um, okay. You know? okay. I yeah. don't think I've ever seen that. I mean, I I have yeah. this other Jeff Goldblum shirtless picture, but it's not from the park. <laughs> is it from the fly uh no it's <laughs> actually going from through... it's an outtake from nashville oh oh yeah nice so so i actually have a couple of uh <laughs> that was a good joke <laughs> that was his first screen performance was nashville it he was yeah talk. he yeah. just does uh magic tricks yeah yeah he's pretty great in it too just as a background thing uh, he's also in uh invasion of the body snatchers um ah. when i think of this movie there are these two musical uh, memes that always pop up into my head. Uh, uh-huh. You ha- you mentioned Jurassic Park, and I hear these two things. I'm going to play both of them for you right now. Here's the first one. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Okay, so, <laughs> sorry, um, and this great. is the this is the second one that I sing all the time. Holy fucking shit, it's a dinosaur, Jesus Christ, what the fuck? Oh my fucking God, fucking dinosaurs, holy shit, what the fuck? first one was better yeah the first one's better what but, was the uh, you meaning know, of that second uh, one what, what was that about why'd you do that why did i did you did, <laughs> why'd you do did you that? hear all the could you make out all the words or uh some of it i heard holy shit what the fuck yeah it's just like and meg and i will walk around singing that all the time holy fucking shit it's a dinosaur oh, okay. yeah yeah that makes and, more sense it's a, it's the music is uh, actually accompanied with that scene from the movie where they see the brachiosaurus. When they say "holy fucking shit" is a dinosaur, I, I forgot that. I think they cut it out of the Amazon Prime uh, rental. Yeah, they just bleep it. Beep beep beep. <laughs> hey, it's PG thirteen. They did. They got one shit in there. I think right. 
Yeah, uh, it's it's Jeff Goldblum. In, yeah. Uh, so um, Laura Dern has her 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 arms elbow deep into some uh, tri triceratops shung. Shit. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, that's a big piece of shit. Yeah, that's a big piece of shit. Big that's pile right. Of shit. That's right. They had one fuck to spare too, and they uh, they left it on the table. But yeah, those and there are there are probably I don't know countless more versions of what I just played you. The melodica one's pretty amazing because it's just so. Great. It's it catches you off guard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I that scene works for me even if the I think out of all the special effects that scene probably uh is the the one that hasn't aged as well as maybe the rest of the movie. Um just because it's like broad daylight and you could kind of see the textures the early digital kind of I thought I was playing Mist for a second. <laughs> yeah. But but the music and their reaction and <laughs> And uh, Laura Dern and like the way like that's another meme with him taking off the glasses and fumbling, taking off his glasses. And then he turns her head and all that stuff. And the way they sell that moment um, in the money guy, uh, you know, the 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 businessman, sure. uh, like his reaction, all that stuff. I think that's why it works. You know, I think without that, I don't I don't know if it works as well. That that moment in particular. Right. Now, you are men of discerning tastes. Uh like Tony, I'm particularly intrigued because you were you were so young, you know, when when this came out and it meant so much to you. Like seeing this through fresh eyes, you know, seeing these actors. Like, what do you think of like the actual film craft and performances? Like, what do you think of the acting, for instance? Because when I see Laura Dern, who I'm a big fan of, I go like, oh, she wasn't that good here. Like, she wasn't good yet. That's what like that's what I think because I think she became great. I don't yeah. think she's good in this movie. I don't think she's terrible. She's not the worst part of the movie. But I go like, wow, Laura Dern's great. What's going on? Was my thinking? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think you know, you use her as an example, and I think, you know, well, yeah, sure, Jeff Goldblum gets to be Jeff Goldblum, but I, you know, I don't think she gets. She's not necessarily bringing that. I think she's great in this. I don't know that she's necessarily doing like her Laura Dern thing. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, I will confess to not having rewatched for this podcast. So, uh, I'm trying to recall the last time I watched it. Um, and yeah, you know, I do think the beginning, the, that first half does get a little expositiony and drags a bit, but I think, I think the performances are great. And like Matt said, I think they have to sell it. And as you sort of move beyond Jurassic Park into super CG heavy, I mean, regardless, when you're doing a big special effects blo- uh, spectacle kind of thing, the actors are going to have to do a lot of heavy lifting because they're not looking at the thing they're supposed to be looking at. And that only got worse as more and more of the sets became gr- just, you know, green slabs mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to the point where you get to, you know, the Star Wars prequels and they're just in a big green room in, you know, George Lucas's house somewhere and there's nothing of the real environment there. And I think they managed to sell the idea that they are existing in a world with dinosaurs pretty well. I mean, this is very much at that intersection of practical and computer effects. So there are, there are a lot of things there for them to, to really react to mm-hmm. and to be scared off of. Um, but yeah, I'm with Matt. I think that, that moment sort of sells the entire premise. Um, and then makes the horror that much more horrifying. So when you go from like, you know, seeing adults just, you know, gaga eyed over this big, peaceful, prehistoric creature. And then you cut to an hour later and there's two children trapped in a kitchen 
with these vicious bloodthirsty monsters um i mean it's I don't know. It doesn't get any better than that kitchen scene for me. Yeah, that scene's pretty holds up so well. It's yeah. the staging yeah. of it really is pretty Staging's remarkable. amazing. Amazing staging. I I I hear what you're saying about Dern. Um she did like this um comes after Blue Velvet and yeah, Wild at yeah, Heart, yeah. which are two of her greatest performances arguably. Um but I I, I can't imagine I think maybe the issue is just of what that character is and not necessarily yeah. her because I think she makes it work and I think a a lesser actress you it might call attention to it a bit more. Right. Um right. I don't like the whole like arc of like of um Sam Neill learning to like kids. I I I don't really care any about about any of that well, stuff. Well, that's the thing. I think if you ask Spielberg like cuz Tony summed it up. This is a monster movie. If you said to Spielberg, yeah. though, what's this movie about? He would say fatherhood. In every sense. I'm saying like in the biblical sense, in the scientific sense, the evolutionary sense, and just the personal sense. Like, it doesn't need to be about fatherhood. No. Like, that's that's like, that's yeah. like the yeah. core for all of his movies. That's, that's what I've is gathered. About like, yeah. yeah, about like, you know, split families. Uh, the big theme for him oftentimes is like, you know, his parents went through a divorce and it kind of fucked him up. And so he's dealing with that. He went through a divorce. Uh, and so that's kind of like this reoccurring theme. Father figures is like the big thing with Spielberg. You see that with everything from E.T. to Catch Me If You Can um, to even elements of Lincoln. To Hook. Yeah. Uh, which is the nadir of of his career? <laughs> uh, what was the nadir? Sorry, I didn't hear it. Hook. Oh, hook. Yeah. Do you guys want to play the quick game of like, have I seen this Spielberg movie? Sure. You want to do because it? Because I've seen some of them, but I just want to contextualize okay. what I know about Spielberg. Okay. Okay. I'll skip some of the obvious early ones because there's no way you've seen Duel or uh, Sugarland Express. Correct. Though I am aware of both of those movies for what it's worth. I think you'd really like Sugarland cool. Express, Chris. Yeah. Uh, Jaws. Yes. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oddly, yes, I saw it once a couple years ago because it's a 70s movie and it seemed important. And I didn't love it, but I don't think it's bad. I think it's cool. And I think if I saw it at the time, I would really have loved it. Yeah. I just want to see how long he can go with that. Oh, no, he stopped. I thought you were just going to keep talking in circles about Close Encounters. <laughs> but also... Uh... <laughs> Obviously, we already discussed Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, E.T. Yeah, no Indiana Jones. Uh, E.T. I had on VHS growing up. I was aware of it, but I don't recall like ever sitting and watching it and certainly not since... 1990 okay i haven't seen it do you know what i mean yeah though i do have a good et story which was i was a uh dating a girl for many years uh someone who i who i quite like still to this day she's a dear friend um and uh i once like loaned her a sweater like a like a hoodie and she was walking downstairs whatever and we were, we were heading out and uh i had to go grab something i come into the stairway and she has the hoodie on you know over her head and it was like super size on her because she was like small and she was going casa oh i should mention too she's from el salvador and she's going, casa, casa. And I was like, are you doing an E.T. impression? <laughs> but you only know it in Spanish because that's what you saw it in was dubbed Spanish when you were a kid. And she was like, oh, yeah, E.T. And I was like, oh, that was great. So anyway, it was just this great moment of like, wait, what is happening? This is very strange behavior. Wait, that's like E.T. Are you saying casa? Home, phone home. I get it. It was this, oh my God, just like the unraveling of, or the unweaving of, what is the logic happening here or am I dating a crazy person? <laughs> and both were true, but just for different reasons. <laughs> Continue. So I'm going to skip a bunch of, of 80s and early 90s I'll, stuff. I'll just say 1945 is my favorite. 
No, is that a movie? Forty one. Nineteen forty one. So that's how much I love it. I don't even know the title. But I'll skip Color Purple, Empire of the Sun. There's Always. You've never seen those, obviously. Uh, so we'll. I've never even heard of Always, actually. Um, you already said you didn't see Schindler's List. You've seen Saving Private Ryan, right? I think I saw half of it in a history class in school, wow. but never on, not, never by my own accord. But I saw the good uh-huh. half. Okay. Okay. The second. The second. <laughs> I love when people get saved. <laughs> um. Uh, Minority Report. Nope. Uh, Catch Me If You Can. Nope. War of the Worlds. Nope. Though that was filmed in Bayo, New Jersey, which is uh, where my team was from. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about Lincoln? I think you'd really like it. I saw Lincoln in the theater with my GMO, and I really liked it because I love Daniel Day. Did you see Bridges Spies? Daniel Day all day. I I haven't seen Bridges Spies, but I would see it because I love the Coen brothers. You should. I know you'd really like Bridges Spies. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. And Mark Rylance, right? I mean, I would see that movie for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you'd probably like The Post, too. It's got some great... Uh... Whoa, I saw The Post. Oh, The Post is good. Yeah, I saw it. Like, uh, yeah. I saw it within the past year. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, Odenkirk's in it and David Yes. 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 The cast is pretty great. Yeah. It is. Um, yeah. Uh, so I've missed some biggies. You missed some biggies. Yeah. Well, you didn't mention my favorite, though. Which is what? War Horse. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love, I love the sincerity. War horse. What? None other than war horse. War horse. War horse. You want to go see a, uh, no, go see a war horse? Tony, have you missed any of those big ones? Uh, yes. Uh, I have not seen The Post or Bridge of Spies. I've not seen Schindler's List because I remember knowing it was a Spielberg movie, wanting to watch it when I was a kid. My dad said, no, it's the only movie that made me cry. And like that stuck with me for my entire life. Oh, so, wow. Like anytime, anytime I've had... The, like the three and a half hour block to do it i like i like revert to being an eight-year-old kid and being like this movie was so intense that it made my dad cry right and you know and like i you know yeah i mean when you're a kid you can't separate that from like what it's about yeah but uh yeah i just uh i, I also don't know that i've ever actually had the three hours to sit down and watch it <laughs> ever <laughs> ever <laughs> ever yeah. Certainly not now. Certainly not now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, definitely didn't see War Horse. Um, I haven't seen Always either. I did I did catch Empire of the Sun on like a sick day when I was a kid. Um, and that I remember was Christian being very Bale as a kid, right? It. Christian Bale. Yeah. 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 Uh, Malkovich is in it. Ben Stiller's in it. Wow. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a British kid being kept in a, a Japanese prisoner camp. He, cause his, his family was in like Shanghai. Or yep. something. He was mm-hmm. um, living in China, so he was, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, going through the war in this prison camp. Um, yeah, it was very moving. I I remember it being very moving. I haven't seen it in years. Yeah, it's it's really good. Um, always, some people consider that to be, um, I guess, one of his worst movies. I don't think it's that bad. I don't think it's great. It's got. I think it's uh, Audrey Hepburn's final performance. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's pretty good in it. Um, it's a beautiful... I mean, all of his movies look incredible. And and I think even like his movies that don't work have some element that you could say like, oh, he's clearly... He's just a master of, of moving the camera. Like his camera moves are so elegant. His blocking is so elegant. And obviously his action sequences are just... Um, some of the best ever. You know, it's funny though, you mentioned the look like watching this early 90s movie. Like 
I'm a child of the 90s, so you would think like I would really relate to the look and feel of 90s cinema, because I have seen other movies from the 90s. Uh, I, it's one of my least favorite looking periods of cinema ever. There's just too much light. There's too much light. There's not enough nuance. Like Even when I see Coen Brothers movies from that period, outside of maybe Miller's Crossing, which is arguably like still kind of an 80s, like it's, it's a very early 90s movie, Like they don't look great. Hudsucker Proxy, the ones they actually had budgets for, don't look great outside of Fargo, I would say. I'm wondering if that's more. I'm wondering if that's more of like a film stock thing for that time period, and 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 like this kind of cross section of technologies at the time. Because when I watch Jurassic Park, I mean, because which is um, lensed by uh, Dean Cundey, who's famous for doing um, Halloween, working with John Carpenter, and there's so much directional light in this, um, and a lot of shape with the light, and really that's kind of what I'm always looking for. Um, there are so many scenes that are just, I thought are, are just absolutely gorgeous, not including hmm. the stuff with the dinosaurs. But I know what you're saying. There's this weird sort of, sort of <sighs> high key element to it in a yeah. sense. Like it's almost like yeah. needs a little more contrast or something. And that just feels like the nineties in, in general. It does. Like even if I watch shortcuts by Robert Altman or the, or the player, like I love Robert Altman and I like those movies a lot. Uh, like they, they look like nineties movies. Well, I go, God, if this was shot in 1974, I would, I like adore this movie. It just it just doesn't look rich, if that makes sense. The texture isn't there. It's a little too smooth. It's it's honestly too good. It looks too good. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think like there are moments like uh, we were talking about the kitchen scene, which I think is just so beautifully lit. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. And obviously, and that's more like, of a low light. Yeah. I was, or like when when Hammond and um, Sattler are having that discussion over the melting ice cream. Oh yeah, well. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a thing. Like when he has characters just talking to each other, it's so the lighting is so specific. Like when they've lost uh, the power, but they have like kind of degenerators on, and and the way everyone's kind of backlit and all that stuff. And uh, I think it's really it's a gorgeous looking movie. Um, it, it, like he also does that kind of haze that he always shoots through with like the back haze and stuff. Like when they show them going through that little tunnel to find that the ember at the beginning. Um, it's just so gorgeous or the shafts of light with the coming through um, some of the cages and um, and even the T-Rex scene, which is at night. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that scene works so, so well is because it's set at night. Uh, and so it's a combination of uh, digital and practical effects. So they built a giant T-Rex. Uh, and it, so when it's bumping up against things, it's actually pushing the, the car and then, um, and I think that's why it works so well and it, and it, and it continues to work now and be better than any of the other Jurassic Park movies um, because there's so much consideration put into how it was lit and to the staging uh, and the mix of practical and visual effects. We've talked about the score a bit, specifically in the Brachiosaurus scene, but like this is, this is arguably like an all-timer for John Williams. I think we can like this score is pretty amazing and does a lot of does a lot of great emotional work. But the sound in general, like the sound of the T-Rex and the Raptors is like iconic. Like, you know, when you, you, you just having seen it once, you see you can see a still and you know exactly what like it's like the Godzilla roar. You know what a Jurassic Park T-Rex sounds like. Um, and it's so like visceral and the Raptors especially are so like it's so scary. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of, um, 
a lot of sensory textures to this movie that just like just do it for me. It doesn't like regardless of how clunky the exposition can be or how long it takes to get to the dinosaurs. Just like knowing it's there and that it's as good as it is. Um, yeah, I just like get chills thinking about a lot of this movie sometimes. Yeah, I think the sound design adds just so much weight to what could have been problematic early CGI. You know, it, you really feel the gravity of these immense creatures, you know, and the personality of them. Oh, for sure. And that's mm-hmm. in the eyes, too, by the way. I think they do really impressive work with the eyes in this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, not since Free Willy have I seen a more expressive animal eye. <laughs> oh, man. There's a close-up of a raptor crying in the most recent Jurassic Park. It's like that, <laughs> what that did, movie... he look at, did he look at some litter? Uh, no, he... Uh... <laughs> I think they were giving him a blood transfusion. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. That that movie was like a hair away from being the Gremlins 2 of Jurassic Park movies. Yeah. And I would have been there for it. Uh it's pretty silly. Uh but no, like 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 you said, like it's an early CGI. And they very much knew that they had a responsibility to deliver something that didn't, you know, look ridiculous. And like and they had to, they had to sell it, and they knew like the technology they'd had up to that point wasn't going to cut it, and they had this new thing that wasn't quite proven, and they just were so strategic about where to use it and where to use practical effects, and really made those two work in concert so well. And the lesson learned from Jurassic Park was computers can do everything, <laughs> yeah. and like they were so everyone else was so quick to abandon how advanced practical effects were. And I think if we had had a few more years of using both that closely, you know, a lot of the embarrassing mid-90s, late-90s CGI would have turned out differently. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing, too, that he utilizes so well is, uh, and, and we talked about this a lot on our Jackie Chan episode, Tony, where... You know, if he's having a fight in a playground, he's going to utilize every element of the playground. And that's exactly what they do in this, where they utilize all these pieces. So if it's the kitchen scene, you know, it's all expressive imagery, like with the breathing onto the the onto the window and it fogs up or seeing them, their feet come down and just like the click, click, click of their talons and um, just like the little details and using the nooks and cranny of the the kitchen in order to kind of build tension. And sure. The other thing that Spielberg is a master at is the thing that, uh, Hitchcock had kind of has always talked about, which is if the audience is aware that there is a time bomb in the briefcase, but the character doesn't know that's going to create tension. And he does that. And like in the instance where, um, they're going to, Put the power back. They cut the power to the whole mm-hmm. park, and they're going to turn. Uh, Laura Dern's character is turning on all the power, and it shows the system with all the switches she has to turn on, and it pans down, and it shows the last switch is the electric fence, which um, the kids and uh, Sam Neill are climbing up, uh, and it reveals that to you, um, and so it's just intentionally building that tension, and you know it's going to be the last one. It's almost like a like a a button to like a. a like a like a joke or something like that as it pans down it's like dun 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 it's yeah. right there it's so great uh as they're climbing up um and he does that throughout the whole movie with the T-Rex scene obviously the way they're kind of it's brilliantly he's demonstrating 
uh, um, chaos theory by taking water from the cup that's in the truck, in, in the Jeep. And then they use that same cups that are in the Jeep in order to demonstrate that the T-Rex is coming with the vibrations in the water, which is arguably one of the most iconic visual things, visual moments in any movie of the 90s. Yeah, uh, yeah. I knew it's just a glass moment. of water and a guitar string. <laughs> yeah, that's been <laughs> that's been mimicked so many times and parodied and 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 uh, you know there are homages to. Uh, I would maybe that's the most popular '90s action movie beat. Um, maybe the 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 closest, the next um, second place maybe would be the scene from the first Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise kind of dangling which has been mimicked uh, repeatedly, which also has kind of sweat dripping off of someone and um, almost hitting someone else. So another water kind of connection thing. But those are probably two of the most popular that I could think of off the top of my head. But mm-hmm. um, it's that's just such brilliant. Uh, that scene is just still, when I watch it now, I'm just like, I can't believe this, the way this works. You're like, no. <laughs> well, here's my thing. Like, and this is part of the reason I don't like movies like this, as, or I don't watch movies like this as much, is I never really reach that moment of transcendence where I forget I'm watching a movie. Like, Spielberg's thing, and honestly, it seems like most mainstream filmmakers' thing is like, I'm making a movie. You're watching it. This is what cinema is. This is what I can do with a camera. This is what I can do with sound. This is what I can do to, to fuck with your expectations or fuck with your emotions or whatever. Like, that's not why I... Like, that's not what I get off on narratively, like, in my life. It's just not. Just as I don't like heavy music, too. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I didn't like the fact that I couldn't... Like, one, I didn't care what happened to anyone. That's, again, that's a problem. But two, just the fact that, like, I was so hyper-aware of the craft and the structuring and all this stuff the whole time, that, the, honestly, weirdly, the, the only thing that caught me off guard, but it was just because I kind of missed the line about the, the hacker, or it was really discreetly done, but... Was that, was I was thinking, how are they getting out of this one? Because I was a beat ahead of this movie the whole way. Like, you know what I mean? And I'm not saying it's obvious, because it's not, but I think like something Billy Wilder used to say was like, if you can disguise your plot beats inside a joke, inside a visual gag, inside, you know, that's when you've done your best work, is disguising the plot beats. And I don't think he does a great job of it. I think he actually almost draws attention to it. Because he's so good at not wasting any moment of film that you go, well, that's not for no reason. And then that becomes predictable. As good craft as it is, the fact that there's not a wasted moment is actually bad. If he put in a meaningless moment or two to get you off the trail, or like for instance, I think the best part of exposition is the animated video that they watch. Because it's it's entertaining, it's funny, it's distracting in its own right, but you're getting a ton of information and they drop in the little bit about the amphibian DNA and it comes back later and it's significant. But it's just enjoyable to watch. You're thinking, this is funny, I've been to Epcot, I get it. You know, like that to me was the most elegant, perhaps exposition in the whole thing, where by and large, I don't think it's now. I think it's actively inelegant. Uh, like the water thing is it's actively inelegant. And then when you see gelatin on that, as they pan over that table at the end, you go, well, that's going to jiggle soon. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it, it is. It's Chekhov's gelatin. But I, I think a lot of what you're talking about is actually the DNA that is in Spielberg and Lucas movies, where it's about the setup and the payoff. And Hitchcock. Yeah. And Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff appeals to me because I love seeing these things kind of play out. And I think a lot of narratives um, 
you know, it's not always about being surprised necessarily. And I do think there are surprises in this. And I think they're in all the action beats, the way those things kind of play out. And I think it's that kind of, you know, Scorsese recently got some heat for saying that Marvel movies are roller coaster rides um, and using roller coaster as a pejorative. But I actually think that roller co- move, some movies are roller coaster rides, and that's a good thing, not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think Marvel movies are roller coaster rides. I think they're kind of like um, the world of tomorrow in, in, in Disney World, which is just kind of like going around in a circle. <laughs> but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's another story. But this is decidedly a roller coaster ride. So when I go to this, that setup payoff thing is kind of, you know, almost what I'm looking for, especially when it comes to monster sure. movie kind of things. Uh, I and I agree with you with all the exposition thing. I think maybe it might be a bit too much, and the characters are a little too thin. And that's why I think in our initial correspondence when we decided to do this, I said that even though I I really enjoy this movie, I still think it's second tier uh, Spielberg because I think when it comes to something like E.T. or um, Close Encounters uh, and Jaws or or Minority Report or AI, those things that you're talking about exist, and they all work in harmony with each other. Um, and, and in this one, it is just purely the monster movie. And it is probably, as Tony said, the perfect example of the monster movie. Um, but, uh, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know, if, know where I'm going after that point, but no, I, no yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, feel I mean, it, and to piggyback on the ride thing, you know, just because, you know, you can look at most roller coasters and see all the drops and the loops and the twists and it doesn't change that, like, just because you know when they're coming doesn't mean you're gonna experience it's not going to be fun yeah. as hell when you're, like, right. you know, dropping at 60 miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, and that, for me, is this movie in a nutshell. Like, it is just, it is a pure amusement park spectacle. Um, and, like, I don't know, I don't know that I ever want more from Jurassic Park. And maybe, like... Maybe when they try to give you more is when it stutters. Like the Lost World is kind of boring. Um, Jurassic Park three is surprisingly fun because it just it's like okay, we're just gonna make a monster movie. Spielberg had left at that point, but like that movie's not interested in doing anything, you know, remotely intellectual. And it's not great, but the action's fun. Um, and I think you know they're like we got giant, we got dinosaurs in this sandbox. Let's just like, how can we? craft something endlessly amusing out of it whether or not it works in all five of them can be argued but i think it works pretty pretty well here i i actually think that there are some um set pieces in jurassic park 2 that are just as good if not slightly better than the first movie it's just the movie as a whole is is just it's kind of terrible but the set pieces there are some great action beats with this one scene in particular where there's like kind of troop of soldiers are going through like this tall grass and they're getting picked off one by one and it's just it's it's primo um but you know i think even on his worst days that's what spielberg is is capable of is doing those kind of things um sure i think ultimately like you know people are fascinated by dinosaurs and kids love dinosaurs and i think that's why people keep coming back to this you know it's the same thing with like zombie movies where people are always kind of pitting themselves against the scenario they're kind of being like how would i survive a zombie apocalypse right i think what's and what's fascinating about dinosaurs is like zombies dinosaurs are impossible except they weren't at one point you know what i mean like that's like that's the leg up dinosaurs will always have on any other mythical monster 
is that they were here once, and that is kind of unbelievable. But that yeah. that knowledge makes them even more fascinating. They were the monsters that actually existed. And, I mean, to some extent, we have monsters. There are certain terrifying animals now, but there's nothing like a giant, you know, bipedal lizard just walking around anybody's backyard anymore. Um, we haven't m- mentioned Wayne Knight uh, really much at all. And, I, I, Chris, I know you're a big Seinfeld fan, so I figure we, we, we have to talk about Newman uh, just a little bit. Um, <laughs> what, did, what did you think when you, when you saw him when he popped up? I thought he was a... It's I. I, I knew he was in this movie. I always knew that. I had no idea he was the, the sweaty villain of the movie. I had no clue. I don't know, man. He, he was a he was he was Wayne Knighting it up just as Goldblum is Goldblooming it up. Yeah. He was fine. He was perfect. I, who else could have played that role? I don't know. He probably played it as, as well as anyone could have. So Yeah. I was happy to see him. I don't think I've seen him in anything except Seinfeld, because again, I don't watch a lot of things. So it was cool to see him in something else. His plan was so harebrained. <laughs> That it's like that defies, you know, all it's enough to take you out of a movie. Uh, just everything about it was just ridiculous. But again, that was he's just a cog in a machine that was get dinosaurs free. Yeah, there are a few non sequiturs in the movie. One is like the his his um uh shaving cream can, which kind of gets lost in the park with the embryos in it. Which I guess could also sort of say like, oh, this is another moment of life finding a way, possibly, or maybe that's just the end of that. Um, but the other thing is, that well, I think it was just honestly they had to get that Barbasol money to afford <laughs> all the CGI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the big, uh, the big uh, shaving cream industry. That's right. Um, yeah, big shaving cream was behind this picture. Big cream, <laughs> big lather. <Yeah. laughs> that's the name of my new band. Big foam. <laughs> Um, and the other thing too is like they mention the T-Rexes uh, no uh, the Triceratops are sick and they keep getting sick and I think it kind of ties into every, every six weeks yeah I think everything kind of ties into this idea that maybe they didn't really think these things through as much as they thought they did um, but they don't also don't really go anything beyond like this thing is sick um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the book actually gets into detail with a lot of these things. I've never read it. Tony, have you ever read the book? I read it in the fourth grade, and boy, was it difficult to get through. <laughs> um, because it it is very, like, it is very, it does get very sciencey. Like, that's kind of Michael Crichton's thing, is kind of finding this interesting scientific idea and crafting a, a pulpy story around it. Um, I would love to revisit it. I do remember, um, you know, and the movie opens the same way with that, with the raptor attacking somebody while they're in transit, um, which you know is another great example of uh, letting the audience know about one of the bombs. Um, and that scene in the book was harrowing. I definitely, sh- you know, if I was probably old enough to have seen the movie when it came out, I definitely was not old enough to read the book. Um, it's just it's very graphic um, and sciency and tough to read when you're. Tired. And I heard Hammond's character was also a lot more cynical because I think Crichton's idea was that he was like an evil version of Walt Disney so essentially Walt Disney but um um he's a little softer um in the movie like he's a little more romanticized I guess and I think that's also one criticism that a lot of people had when the movie came out was that he was this kind of you know oh I'm trying my best I just wanted to give dinosaurs to the people I kind of almost see him as a as a as a Spielberg surrogate in a lot of ways like as a director 
you're in charge of this big thing and you want to make this entertaining populist thing for everybody, but that gets out of your control quickly. Uh, and, and, and the outcome isn't always up to you, even if you're one of the best directors in the world. Yeah, I can see that. And you know, the heroes of the movie are the ones telling him that he's wrong and bad at what he does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did, did you have a, so out of all the set pieces, Chris, did you have a favorite? I, I do like that kitchen sequence a lot. And there's nothing like the first T-Rex sequence where you go, oh, this got real fast, you know, because I had no sense of where it was going. And that's part of the thing of lulling you in almost into catatonia with an hour of exposition that then you're like, oh, it's happening. Like the movie's happening now. It's happening to me. <laughs> so those two stand out. I really liked the shot, though the, it was so funny because I don't think they quite nailed it. I don't think they quite had the technology to nail it. It was a bit of a failing, but the concept of the shot when they're in the ceiling panels and she's falling through and hanging on and the raptor falls down below, like that's, that's Scorsese and Taxi Driver. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's a really brilliant shot, but it doesn't quite land because the technology wasn't there. But that struck me as that's killer. That angle is killer. It's like all those kind of early composite kind of stuff where you could tell that, yeah. you know, there's different levels that they're superimposed on each other, but you get it conceptually. So you're like, oh, yeah, all right, I buy this because it looks it looks terrific where she's just kind of dangling. Yeah. And then she's pulling herself up and then it almost gets her foot. It's just like that perfect kind of calibration of absolutely of like, let's add another beat to this. Let's add another kind of little action, little moment right at the end. And um, the movie's kind of filled with that. I literally laughed out loud when the T-Rex saves the day and then they cut back to it and the banner of dinosaurs ruled the earth falls in front of him. Yeah. I was like, is this a, like, that's such a joke Yeah, that it like had to oh, be it's such a great button. Yeah. Uh, it is. It's a great button, but it's like, all right, like, here's my nose. Just put it right here. Just put it. I think at that point, he's just like, fuck it. <laughs> you know, like, I, I know you're, this is what you're here just the for. The way it elegantly fell and you could read it perfectly. Yeah. It was just, I, I was like, I had to pause. It's I was so funny. So hard. And it's interesting the way the ending, the movie ends, they're kind of like whisked away on the helicopter and they're leaving the island. And John Hammond's kind of just like, oh, yeah, well, I, I you know, I screwed the pooch there. Um, and the music is kind of wistful and also like uplifting but the ending is not i mean they failed and they're leaving these dinosaurs yeah. here and this is like well you're dinosaurs on an island and that's it you know um which is kind of it's interesting to hear that the the, the dichotomy between the what the music is trying to convince you to feel and what actually happened well i i always thought it was kind of sweet the way that it ends on that shot of the birds and like you know we do see kind of through grant's eyes like this opportunity to see the thing that he's dedicated his life to and like what a, a sort of, you know, pathetic, uh, how kind of pathetic that thing has become. Cause like he talks about how, um, you know, uh, uh, birds are the closest relative to dinosaurs early on. And like, he just has to accept it. Like that's it now. Like there are just birds and like it is, uh, it is so childish and dangerous to have, to imagine what this could have become if it got any more out of hand than it already did. Um, I always kind of like that, that ending. It's not, I don't dislike the ending. I just think it's interesting that mix of the, the soaring uplifting music with what, how the ending, you know, what the ending actually is, which I think is an interesting. Is it soaring? I thought, I thought the, the, like the very end before like the credits kick in, it's sort of, I thought it was kind of a softer theme or something. It's a mixture, you know, 
it's 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 yeah. still in in the key of what the score is in general. A D flat major for those of you keeping score. D flat major. Cool. Well, that's Jurassic Park. Are you? Are, so, Chris, are you are you glad that you finally checked this off the list that you could tell people? Yeah, I've seen Jurassic Park. Yeah, you know, I've been asked it so much in in the past twenty seven years that it's fu- it's. I'm so relieved to finally say, yeah, I've seen it. You know, it's like, yeah, I didn't realize how much it was weighing on me. Quite honestly, <laughs> now I'm coming for you, Terminator. But um, yeah, I am glad to have finally watched it, and I enjoyed it, and I and I think it's good for me. You know what? This this movie is like really good pop music. Like it's not music that's made for me, but it's also really well crafted and really easy and really fun and flies by and gets the heart racing, and it it worked on all those levels. Its biggest failing is the thing that I care the most about in art and in in, in movies and in any narrative thing is the human response to things. I think they. I don't think it was a concern of theirs generally, the human response to things, because this is, and of course, this is also being informed by we're living in a very traumatic period, and we're all suffering trauma on some level or another, some people on a lot of levels, and I don't think there were appropriate traumatic, appropriate responses to the type of trauma that everyone was suffering. Sure. It just wasn't there. You don't make a joke about being electrocuted in front of two kids that were just almost mauled by a T-Rex. You just don't, It's just like a really tone-deaf mu- movie on a human level. It, you know what I mean? So that's where it failed me. But as far as a ride, man, like if, if you put it on at any time, I'm not walking away. I'm going to be like, oh, I got to watch this set piece. Like th- a good thing's about to happen. This is great. So I'm really glad I got to watch it on all those levels. And yeah, I don't like, by the way, I don't like being ignorant. It's just that I, I'm very selective about what I take the time to in in uh, ingest culturally. That's really what it comes down to. And so this isn't generally the type of thing I would give the time to. So I'm glad I did this morning, though, as you can tell, I put it off to the last possible moment. Um, I think the two things that have actually had a lot of staying power with this movie beyond, you know, it's it's action set pieces and how influential they are uh, and how it kicked off essentially the last three decades of of tentpole movies with its approach to visual effects uh, for better and for worse um, are that notion that uh, there are things that are bigger than us that we cannot control. And I think that key line of um, which is used so frequently nowadays is, um, you know, you sat around thinking about whether or not you could, you never really thought about if you should. Yeah. And that's something that I think you hear a lot. uh, People use that quote all the time in regards to politics and whatnot. I think another thing, too, that gets brought up, uh, especially now, is this notion that one criticism of the sequels is that, like, who in God's name would open these parks again after everything that had happened? And it's pretty clear that people would do that now. (laughs) Especially with everything going on with the pandemic and and obviously Disney's opening, the numbers are going up with with uh, um, uh, as far as uh, people being infected and and people are still dying and Disney's like yeah we're we're opening back up, um, which is kind of startling and and so it makes the movie kind of relevant in some ways too of this kind of gross neglect in regards to making a fuck ton of money uplifting so matt yeah do you have any recommendations for chris yeah so chris i have uh three recommendations that run the gamut uh the first one is the original king kong which is from the 30s holds up remarkably well uh 
similar to Jurassic Park is also equally as influential and probably a big influence on Jurassic Park. 90 minutes uh, in and out, great set pieces, beautiful um, kind of handcrafted stop motion visual effects that I think still look really cool now. Not because they look real, but because they look like they were designed with purpose and with artistry. It's a great movie, and I was really surprised when I rewatched it uh, in the last few years, and I was like, I think it's just a great popcorn movie. The second is this cheap, crappy piece of shit called Tammy and the T-Rex. This came out in 1994. Uh, Essentially, um, this producer was approached by this kind of traveling uh, carnival kind of guy who said he had access to a mechanical T-Rex that kind of goes to like carnivals and local stuff. It looks like crap. He's like, I have access to it. We should make a movie. Uh, We have a month. We have access for it for a month. We need to make the movie right now. So they kind of winged it. It stars Denise Richards and she's really bad. Uh, But it became like a cult favorite because it's so bonkers and it's incredibly violent. Um, But it's, it's a unique movie and obviously a counter to the artistry because it's just people. Uh, what, what I really appeals to me is just like a bunch of people doing something for the love of it. And you could tell that they're just kind of flying by the seat of their pants, but there's some personality there. And then the last thing I want to recommend uh, came out last year. And it's by one of my favorite animators. His name is Gendy Tartakovsky. He did Dexter's Lab, but more importantly, he did uh, Samurai Jack. And he recently put out this series called Primal. Uh, it's so it's this, uh, there's only five episodes right now. It's this animated series essentially about this kind of Neanderthal man, uh, and his, uh, I, I guess you can call it pet dinosaur. They're more kind of like comrades than, you know, uh, any kind of subservient or pet role. Uh, and they both lost their family. So they're both prehistoric times trying to survive and it's all visual storytelling. There's no dialogue. Um, it's really cool. Um, that just that kind of thought put behind the action beats like you'd see in like a Kung Fu movie or in like a Spielberg movie and some great crisp um, animation with really broad sketchy kind of lines. And uh, it's really wonderful. Uh, And I I hope more people kind of seek it out because it's pretty terrific. Uh, What about you, Chris? Do you have any recommendations? Last action hero. Great. Uh, Tony. <laughs> I mean, I, you definitely should probably get around to Raiders of the Lost Ark at some point. Um, I mean, it's Harrison Ford at his best. Uh, completely practical set pieces. Amazing stunts. Um, and, you know, I think the character Indiana Jones is sort of uh, superficially looked at as like a good guy. But in Raiders especially, he is very much kind of like this mercenary kind of exists in a gray area. And as I've gotten older, that's been the most rewarding of the Indiana Jones movies to go back to, because there is a lot of nuance and um, there are certainly some aspects of his character that make him uh, decidedly not a good guy. Hmm. Um, And there is a a whole lot of that toying with that, Um, you know, beyond like the, you know, cool fight scenes and the car chases and stuff. Um, is this like the pretty... Empire? Is this like the Empire of the Indiana Jones saga? It's the first no, this one. is the first one. Oh, this is the first one? Yeah. Yeah. Is it considered the um, be- Like, which one do people generally like the most? Not not just you. 
Uh, I think it's a toss-up between Raiders and The Last Crusade, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think cinephiles are decidedly in the Raiders of the Lost Ark camp. Gotcha. Oh, I would agree with that 100%. I think fans are, are is probably a toss-up. I think anyone who thinks Crusade is better is objectively wrong, but that's an that's a, a debate for another day. Um, but cr- sure. Last Crusade is 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 still good. It's still very good. Yeah, it's still great. It's a lot of fun. It feels like Spielberg in like people pleasing mode. Where he's like, I know what you want, because uh, the sequel Temple of Doom is not what people wanted necessarily. Although it was a big success, um, it's still people were kind of like, oh, uh, this may be too much. Um, and I would argue right. that the second one probably has the best action set pieces, but like as a complete package it it's just not nearly as good as as Raiders of the Lost Ark uh but it felt like for the third one he's just like oh I need to give them what they want so it's sort of like a retread a bit of the first one but it does have a good Mm -hmm. uh Sean Connery um performance in it he plays his dad yeah I watched it recently and was more moved by their relationship than I think I ever have been I mean it could be because I'm a dad now (laughs) uh and I was looking at it through a different lens but I think Raiders is um is great. I think the the script is excellent. Um, it's so unlike you beyond the superficial stuff. It's so unlike the rest of the series. Um, the other recommendation, because you mentioned it, uh, I'm assuming you haven't seen Terminator Two. He hasn't I seen Terminator no. One. I think. I think I I'm going to recommend the second one. You're not miss. I mean, not that you're not missing out, but like you won't be lost without having seen the first one. But that sort of shows. That's your judgment. Boom. <laughs> good one the, good i tell one. you what the crowd that's right outside my window right now they laughed at that they liked it are they all wearing masks <laughs> no nope. they should be <laughs> i said keep your masks well, on i want to hear your laughs um compared to jurassic park terminator 2's cgi is very quaint but super effective and the practical set pieces are ridiculous i mean like car chases shit blowing up helicopters you name it this is like James Cameron making a slick as fuck, top notch, relentless action movie. Um, and, you know, in terms of it as spectacle and a ride, it's thrilling. It dips its toe into some bigger questions. You might not be satisfied, but like at least it's trying to engage with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, you do see a lot of the template for action movies for the following 10 years in that. Um, right on. I, I mean, I obviously should see both of those movies. I mean, there's no excuse for me to be my age and grow up when I have and not ever whiffed at those movies. Outside of, I will say this, I've seen the Indiana Jones stunt spectacular at Universal. I've been on the King Kong attraction. So, like, I feel in a way like I've seen them. There you go. You've lived it, man. Why, yeah. why watch why it? I lived it. I don't want it to homogenize, you know, the, the, <laughs> the sanitized version through my screen. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, Tony. Uh, I, for Chris, I think that makes a lot of sense. I do personally prefer the first Terminator. I think it's a lot more lean and efficient, although there's no denying that the action set pieces in the in the second one are some of the best ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you should watch some. And, and Alien, obviously. I, now, just clarify for me and maybe the list, what, what Alien, what is that Alien? Because there's Alien and Aliens. And, this is oh, from the, what is that? my shirt is from the first movie. Okay, Ridley Scott? Ridley Scott, yeah. yeah. And James okay. Cameron did the second one. Oh, gotcha. I also prefer the first one to, to the sequel. Se- the sequel is more of like an action movie. The first one's more of like a horror movie. And Fincher did one. I'll say he? this about yeah. Alien Aliens. I, can, I could watch Aliens anytime and be happy with it. 
and Alien, I got to be in the right mood for. Mm. Mm. I, I'm the both. I'm the same for both. I, I, anytime I can put yeah. on either of them. Right on. But I, I, I'm all, I love horror so much that like, you know, whatever. I, I'd ra- I like, I love mood and atmosphere and texture. And I love Bill Paxton. <laughs> and I love, uh, um, the guy from Mad About You, uh, John Hurt. Paul Reiser. Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> John oh. Hurt. John uh, Hurt. Yeah, he's the best. Mississippi John Hurt, the the, the guitar picker, the one and only. <laughs> I think you were probably wrapping up the show after those wonderful rec- recommendations. I apologize. I'm a bad guest. No, you're. Uh, it was great having you know. back, Chris. Thank you so much. Oh man, it was a pleasure. Yeah, great to see you guys. Honestly, Matt, we haven't hung out in a long time, so this was great. And Tony, I haven't seen you since the twins. So congratulations. Always a pleasure. Thank you very guys. much. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Um, where can our listeners find uh, you in fish riffs and all the yeah. other stuff? Yeah, for the podcast stuff, I would say uh, at Weez Talkin' Weez, W-E-Z Talkin' W-E-E-Z, and uh, Blue Album Battle Podcast, Weez Talkin' Weez to The Podcast, and at Fish Riffs on Instagram. If you like uh, good guitar playing and uh, fun music and can tolerate some goofiness, that's the spot for you people. (laughs) Yeah, terrific. Thanks again. I guess that's it. We'll see everybody later. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And you can find previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And thanks as always to the What's Your Writers Club in downtown Providence for hosting us. You can follow them on Instagram and Twitter at What's Your Club. And you can get more information about what they do on their website at whatsyourclub.org.